Let's pray, and then let me, let me um, line out what the next couple of weeks will be, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Thank you for being faithful to us always. We're grateful, Lord, too, for the word of God, for truth that you have made known to us. Give us hearts that hunger after knowing the truth. And we're grateful for the certainty of your truth. As Peter said, we don't follow cunningly devised myths or fables. This is the truth, and we can know it, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Tonight, I want to try to finish, um, well, we just will, finish... um, kind of where Roman religion, philosophy, took over from Greek or absorbed. Um, And then some of the early um, philosophies, gods, and so forth that the apostles encountered in the New Testament era. Then next week, next Sunday, uh, Tom Mills is going to do Egyptology. We're, we're losing chronologically here, but um, the gods of the Egypts, uh, G- Egyptians, especially the gods that were singled out in the plagues and understanding what um, in the Old Testament era, early Old Testament, the religions that were in competition with the Hebrew God. So then the week after that, I think is the 18th, right? That, what was tonight? Today's 18th. Anyway, two weeks from tonight, we don't have Wednesday night. I think it's either, is it teacher's conference? Yeah. So, you know, all of our teachers that are here that work for school district are in conferences. So uh, that's the first one of the year that we're, um, you know, going to be off for. Okay. Um, I'm sure every one of you remember every single thing we mentioned last week about the Greek gods and, you know... um, much of what the the whole um, arrangement and array of Greek gods, Greek religion, was absorbed by the Romans. One of the characteristics of the Roman Empire as it spread was, um, you know, it... Christians couldn't do what they did because truth, um, uh, there's objective truth, and we understand there's one God and so forth. But when it came to especially God's religious habits, um, the Romans were pretty okay with letting all of the conquered people that they um, took into their empire, they didn't disturb them a lot as far as outlawing their gods, um, some way condemning some of their cultural practices, they 
they just added a few things. They kind of let them do their own thing. But early on, um, the Romans, there was a little bit of emperor worship starting under Alexander the Great. It's not unheard of because the pharaoh, you go clear back to Egypt, pharaoh was a deity. This is partly why <clears throat> when God struck even Pharaoh's son um, dead, this was a major you know, infliction of defeat on one of their, their gods. Sun God was high in their list. Um, and, you know, the three days of total darkness was against that God. But at any rate, um, the deity or, um, you know, the God, God-likeness of the emperor advanced under the Romans so that in early Christian times um, one of the worships that was added to the whole pantheon of gods that Christians faced was emperor worship. And emperor worship um, again would be left alone and to a certain degree initially when Christianity was just um, starting not well known yet, not completely understood uh, yet, um, they would have left Christians alone. As long as they burned their pinch of incest at an annual feast or worship or whatever to the emperor, um, you were okay. Well, of course, quickly, they begin, it began to dawn on them that this new Christian religion proclaimed one Lord, you know, one God, one ruler, king over all the earth. And so that then quickly became, um, you know, a watershed issue for Christians who couldn't worship the emperor um, by burning incense to them receiving some proof that they had done that. We kind of can't understand, by experience at least, how wed together religion, the emperor, so forth, were in Roman uh, times. It was government and religion was so intertwined that to not worship the emperor was not heresy. It wasn't a false, you know, it, you weren't fighting with the gods, really. You were treasonous because you were against the government. The government is overseen by an emperor who is deity. So if you do that, then you should be put to death. Not because you worshiped a god that they didn't approve of, but you undermined this, the security of the Roman Empire and of the rulers. And so that was how they looked at it. Christians, of course, looked at it 
through the prism of worship of God. And they could not um, deviate from worshiping Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to burn incense and worship the emperor. Um, so that's where the clash began to come in as the early Christian church started to come under um, persecution. Now, it took a long time. There was clearly persecution in the very first um, century uh, with most of the apostles, at least as far as we can tell, were martyred either by um, the Roman government or Herod um, in Palestine, the Jews in some cases. Um, but it, it became more and more concentrated on the emperor and more widespread, the persecution did, um, on whether or not you would, you would admit that the emperor was worthy to be worshipped and you participated in the public um, religious events and so forth. Okay? <clears throat> um, we'll maybe touch on that in a minute. But once, um, once Rome... Rome was really, I think it was 146 B.C. or 148. Those two years make a huge difference, if, you know, if we don't have it right. Um, Caesar, Julius Caesar, beat somebody. Um, anybody remember what that battle was? It's, you know, if you know classical history, you're supposed to know it. But anyway, um, so the rest of you are as bad off as I am. Um, what? I can't remember. It, it's a battle of a location, but um, I can't remember. But anyway, um, that brought Julius Caesar um, and, and was the beginning mark, at least in history, for the establishment of the Roman, uh, Roman Empire, which continued to, to re recede and to um, gain and so forth. Okay, um, Now, Sticking, though, mainly to um, the, the religions here. Um, the Greek philosophy, the Roman philosophy, which also was virtually one and the same as theology, um, taught some things that bled into the early Christian church and were quite a threat to the church. Okay? Um, there was a, there's an ancient, um, pretty ancient theory or philosophy um, called dualism. Now, it takes all kinds of different forms, and so it's really hard to try to explain uh, or to nail it down. Dualism had the notion that all of reality the world and everything else consisted of two, just two things, okay? And there were a number of, um, they were in competition, they were implacable, they were not going to merge together, they were not going to live together, whether it be a, think, uh, a way of thinking, a philosophy, a religion, a worship. So you have good, evil, you have, um, well, you have spirit, you have matter, um, you have 
sun, you have light and darkness, you have, there's a whole bunch of these um, concepts that are opposed to each other, in some cases mutually exclusive. Um, and out of all of that fevered thinking, um, dualism came a major strain of dualism. Okay? And it focused on mostly on the spirit and matter dualism. Spirit was, um, of course, thoughts, our minds, gods we can't see but worship, um, the invisible world, said to be good, to be in harmony with the invisible world, the gods, the flow of events, uh, all of this was what the, the philosophers aimed for. That was whether you were Epicurean, whether you were Stoic, which were some of the philosophies that Paul ran into uh, in Athens. Um, they were debating with him. Those, the aim was to be in harmony with those. You have, you go back a bit further, um, Plato had what he called the ideas. And here's a real, um, it, I hope it's not incorrect, but a real simple way. Um, there were in the heavens ideas, or another term was forms, okay? And the ideas or the forms, now this is where it gets, I'm probably being too simple. I'm glad there's not a philosophy professor in here. The forms are almost like perfection or perfect cookie cutters of humanness, hoarseness, dogness, uh, beauty, flowers, whatever, okay? Um, and those ideas were to influence matter. Now, some philosophers use this notion to explain, that I'm going to mention, explain the presence of evil. They were aware enough spiritually to recognize that there was evil in the world and they, there was an innate sense that evil shouldn't be. So a lot of the philosophers' aims was to try to figure out and explain the presence of evil. If you have gods, most of whom are good, they're not all, but if you have gods and you have an uncreated creator an or an unmoved mover who started all of this, how did evil get here? Well, um, some of them believed that there was, there was called a demiurge, um, a god that applied the cookie cutters to the cookie dough. Okay? Um, and why don't you have a perfect horse? The forms are. The cookie cutters are. Why don't you have a perfect dog, a perfect person? Well, you've got to blame it on something, either the god who you didn't want to blame it on, the forms which Plato considered to be perfect, 
the only other thing left is the cookie dough. Okay? So why do we have evil? Why are the forms which are perfect marred? Does that make any sense? That they're, they're not what they ought to be. The cookie dough's the problem. Or in other words, matter, earth, dirt, um, atoms. <clears throat> and so out of that, you, hopefully, you can see where it began to be transferred, the thinking began to be transferred to um, the physical world that we can see and measure, including like our bodies. They are the source, they're the location of evil. Spirit, which, is you, which you can't see, the unseeable, the eternal, that's good. The forms, Plato's ideas, the, the matter that these forms are impressed on don't come out perfectly because the problem is in the matter. Okay, now hang on to that little thought. Um, as it progresses then, it took a hundred different directions. So it's, again, it's a hard thing to nail down. But dualism, there was a Jewish philosopher, and I can't remember, um, two or three hundred B.C., Philo was his name. Philo, I, I had to study Philo in, in, when I was in college and majored in philosophy, and I, I, I don't know, I never could figure it out. But anyway, um, he believed that the spiritual world and the Godhead, whatever that meant to him, had a series, series, and this, uh, all of this you want to, I want to see you writing it, it's really important. Emanations, okay, emanations were outflows of God, whatever he pictured God as. And you have a series of, almost endless series of emanations from the Godhead, in, and that would include like angels, it would include everything, man. Um, and those bore the imprint of spirit, okay? Um, where being good, spirit can't be joined with matter, okay? Matter and spirit can be in proximity, but you can't mingle them because matter is the source of, of evil. Matter is evil. Spirit is good. So you can think, okay, fine, so what? Well, um, I don't know how many people paid any attention to Philo, but that thinking and the continual Greek thinking about dualism, spirit is good, matter is evil, invaded in the first and second century Christianity. And the doctrine or the heresy that it ended up being named was Gnosticism. Gnosticism start, it, it's a, it starts with a G. Um, G-N-O-S-T-I-C ISM, I think. Um, anyway, um, Gnosticism taught this dualism. 
And they also taught some other stuff that was, um, the whole Gnosticism is the word for knowledge. And so knowing, they knew, they only a select few knew some of these eternal truths and eternal philosophies. That was salvation. You weren't saved by faith. You're saved by a special, being a part of a special group with a very limited, um, limited group that knew this esoteric knowledge out here. Okay? And it was kind of a secret thing. It was considered, um, the word esoteric even means for a very limited, closed group. Okay? So you were saved by, and sometimes even visions or whatever, this knowledge, gnosis, um, that was how you were saved. You were not saved by faith. They, they also... Uh, there were also heretical ideas about Jesus. If spirit and matter cannot be together, you, the, the next thing that comes about is denial of the incarnation. So Jesus, being pure spirit, could never have inhabited a true human body. Okay? Because spirit and matter are evil or spirit and matter or matter are opposed to each other so then you've got so you deny the incarnation and some of them some of the gnostics also denied the deity of christ they in they believed and this is not contradictory to the matters evil spirits good thing but that Jesus at his baptism, the man, the human person, Jesus, just a person, at his baptism, Christ, eternal spirit, descended on Jesus at his baptism, remained on him, not necessarily, not, not an incarnation, but remained upon him until his death, at which time the, the, the Christ went back to heaven and the man Jesus perished so you deny the resurrection okay um, so what do you do with all of the eyewitness accounts of a man called Jesus who people who witnessed the miracles Thomas put your finger in my nail prints feeding the 5,000 all the things that he did what do you do with those well they are not real. This just comes to me and I, you know, don't want to get off the subject. But it's like today. It's really like today. You think you saw it, but you really didn't. Your budget doesn't tell you that you're better, but you are. Under Bidenomics. So just, I don't care what your eyes tell you. Seriously, that's the, so Jesus in his three years was a phantom. He was an appearance, but he wasn't real. It was just an appearance. Okay? Now, um, that of course was hit hard in the New Testament. Um, 
Paul hit the emanation stuff that Jesus, God came down to earth, not a series of emanations of angels and different beings. John, in 1 John especially, um, and as well as all the Gospels, but John especially hits really hard the idea of Jesus being a phantom. That's why he says, when he introduces 1 John, that which we have seen, that which we have touched, that which we have handled, he's saying he wasn't a phantom. When we understand the inroads that Gnosticism was making into early Christianity, even still when the apostles were alive, then we can see why they wrote things that they wrote, what they were shooting at. Okay? Um, now, here's a further outgrowth of Gnosticism. In some ways, Gnosticism is still around. Um, in fact, some of the liberal, liberal Protestants, um, oh, this, this is old. I mean, it was back when probably I was in seminary. But there was something they called, they called the swoon theory. Okay, the swoon theory was an, an, an effort to explain the resurrection. That and I'm not making this up because it's nuts. But they think you. They thought it was Jesus on the cross, but it was really just a human Jesus, not the Son of God. He did really die. Well, he looked like he died. He didn't really die. Okay, they put him in the tomb, and the cold, you know, air of the tomb revived him. And, you know, he came out of the tomb. He, he you know, he fainted, basically. Um, and then he came out. But there was not an actual death. There was then, therefore, not a true resurrection. Okay? So, obviously, this was at the very foundations of Christianity. And then you have, um, you don't have quite as clear a picture of of kind of the end game of Gnosticism, how it affected the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of righteousness and holiness until you get pretty much, you get to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, you have ever read, and it's kind of shrouded, but ever read where, and I can't remember which church it was, the message of the seven churches, um, I don't know if it was Laod. I don't think it was Laod to see it. Anyway, where it says you have that person um, teaching my servants to commit fornication. And then it goes on and speaks about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which, Jesus is speaking, which thing I hate. Okay? Generally, um, what, in addition to what Gnosticism taught about Christ, taking all our incarnation and deity, basically, from him, um, resurrection and all that, quote, salvation, whatever tattered bit of salvation is left, 
Remember, dualism is still here, still in that thinking, so that spirit's good, matter is evil, and the two cannot mingle, cannot be wed. Okay? The teaching then was that whatever, and it led in two directions. My spirit is redeemed. My spirit can be good. My spirit can be, quote, saved, whatever definition they had for saved. Okay? My body is matter. So there is no way that an evil body can ever live a holy, righteous life. We will, we will sin and whoever, there, the, well, the one of the teachers in Revelation was labeled, you have that Jezebel, says, who teaches my servants to commit fornication. The point being, with dualism, your spirit can be fine and good and righteous. Your body is an instrument of sinning, even to the dregs. I mean, um, you know, prostitution, adultery, it doesn't matter. And no, neither one, neither matter nor spirit are affected by each other. You have a good spirit that doesn't have any effect on your body. You still sin all the time and grossly. What your, what your body does and the sinning you do in your body has no impact on your spirit. You're still fine. Okay? Now, that has survived in different forms. But the idea that it, then it, drew, it, it produced, that teaching produced two extremes. One was uh, license, libertinism. Just eat, drink, and be merry, bacchanalia feasts, um, drunken stuff, just depravity. And you're still a Christian. Because matter, what you do in your body, has no effect on what you do, what your spirit is. Because matter and spirit are not, they are not joinable. Okay? The other thing that it produced was the opposite. There were Christians then, and this kind of laid the foundation for monasticism, which showed up a couple centuries later. But um, the word asceticism, which is um, harsh, extreme treatment of the body to keep it under. Since the body is matter and it's nothing but evil, we need to you know, beat it, whip it, do everything we can to stifle this evilness that's in it. Okay? Um, and so those two extremes were a result of that teaching that whatever I do in my body has no effect on my spirit. Okay? Everybody understand that so far? So it's desperately dangerous. Okay? Now, um, even later, um, the notion of the... There's a foundational notion in dualism, of course, is that the body is the source or the location, if you want to use that term, of sin. Okay? Um, now, where that 
other places <clears throat> that that leads you to. Um, there's a general, there was a general um, gradual growing of viewing the body itself, the bodily functions, the bodily desires, drives, appetites as evil. And instead of what we properly should call inherited depravity, the sinful nature, the, when you get into the third, fourth centuries and famous people like St. Augustine, so forth, um, taught that the body is and its appetites are sinful. This is what partially undergird uh, the move towards a celibate priesthood. Okay? Now, supposedly, you're married to the church if you're a priest. And, you know, to give yourself wholly to the service of the church, the term was used, and it was, we know what it meant. Um, we'll, we still will use the term, so-and-so is just married to the ponies, you know what I mean? Gambling or whatever. Um, if you're going to be married and properly serve the church as a priest, you can't have the um, baggage of a wife and kids. Now, you might think, well, what kind of horrible, you know. Um, taking Paul's words, twisting them, but Paul said, it's better that you not be married because of the present distress. Nobody pays any attention to the phrase because of the present distress. The present distress was looming persecution. He said, if you're not married, you're going to be better off when they come to get you and either burn you at the stake or let you have, put you on a pole and dip you in tar and light Nero's garden parties, literally. Throw you to the lions. You're better off if you don't have a wife and kids. Yet he also said that in serving the Lord, the person he said who is single, can serve them more fully. But he said those who have a spouse um, want to please and take care of their spouse, which is normal. Now, by saying that, he's not condemning being married. He's just saying it's a fact. Um, the, the notion that um, celibate priesthood is required is not true. It's ironic that the, the, the first supposedly claimed, the first pope, Peter, was married. Um, then you have Paul's instructions to both Timothy and to Titus, young pastors that he assigned to the island of Crete and Timothy in Ephesus. And he said, you guys both appoint pastors over these, all the little churches that are springing up. And he says, uh, then he gave very detailed requirements for a pastor. But among them, he says, a husband of one wife, children that are not unruly, uh, somebody who's not greedy for money and so forth. When he talks about a wife, um, be a husband, one wife, neither is it talking about um, divorce or even widow, being a widower 
I remember in seminary, we had a, our seminary, um, the dean of the seminary, um, we were in class and he was teaching and we got into, we were in that passage, I can't remember what class it was. But he had been, uh, his, his first wife had died of cancer. And some years later, he had remarried. And um, that was his current wife. When That's who we knew, uh, you know, when he, he was professor at seminary. And I remember <laughs> just a nutcase of a guy, um, student, that would always just kind of shoot his mouth off and ask really dumb questions. Um, he raised his hand and asked Dr. Kleinmanhaga, was his name, if he, Kleinmanhaga, was in violation of Paul's instructions because he had a second wife. I mean, that's, you can't ask a dumber question than that. Um, but there are some people that even think that. Um, what he's talking about is polygamy, um, which was still, you know, widely practiced. Um, that's all he's talking about, okay? But the notion of celibate priests was partially based on this notion that the bodily appetites, especially sexual drive, was somehow icky, <laughs> okay? Um, so, I mentioned that the, the theological term for the um, sinful nature, inherited depravity or inbred sin, was changed, a new term was used, and it's still used, um, but it's called concupiscence. And concupiscence is specifically fleshly sexual desires. Okay, now, um, so a whole doctrine came up um, that denigrated, really, in a, in, in a way, the whole institution of marriage to a degree. Um, and I want to be, um, there was a, otherwise, um, and even though some of the early church fathers had some of these notions, I'm not saying that that landed them in hell. Okay, they were. I know that they were put into a kind of a little re-education camp when they first got to heaven to get some of those crazy ideas out of their heads. Okay, um, but a, a good bishop of North Africa by the name of Cyprian. Um, I can't remember his dates, but I think it was in the two hundreds, three hundreds. Anyway. Um, Cyprian taught, and remember, and, and I'm, again, I want to be discreet here, but the, the, the church began to pick dates that no marital relations were allowed on them. Friday was one of them because that's the day Christ was crucified. Okay? Um, other dates began to be blocked out. Cyprian taught that marital relations during marital relations the Holy Spirit vacated the house okay then came back later okay 
to a degree, I don't cede anything to the world, but a long enough history of some of that kind of teaching is why um, the secular world snickers at Christians and our views on sexual mores, they laugh at us because they think we're the ones that have um, besmirched the whole notion. Well, enough of that kind of teaching. And you can see why we get accused of that. Okay? Um, anyway, that notion, though, of matter, body is evil, spirit is good, has never been run out of the world or out of the church. It's still in portions um, of the church. Okay? Um, maybe I better not go any further and run the risk of irritating people. Um, but I think it's also, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> um, a lot of denominations or movements or um, religious, um, um, what would I say, religious convictions, okay, underlie, are still under, um, underlaid by that notion that the uh, attraction from, uh, attraction between the sexes is somehow evil. Um, the Bible college that I went to for got saved when I was 20 in Eugene. God got me out of there. And I look back on it. Now I know exactly why God sent me to this little college, Bible college in, uh, that I knew about in Iowa. Okay. Um, and I got saved on a Friday. And I think it was one week or 10 days later, quickly, I'd applied to this school, and basically, if you had two things, a pulse and a checkbook, you got in, okay? That means, and I had, I had compiled in two years of college in Eugene from partying and just, you know, just being a mess. I had managed to compile a 1.25 GPA, okay? Um, seriously. So I think my mom made, I don't know if they'll take, you know, your grades were horrible. You know, my dad said, they'll take you if you got a check. Um, and that was true. Anyway, I went to this little Bible college very rapidly. I know the reason God, he just, he helicoptered me out of the group of friends I had in Eugene. Now, they weren't cooking, you know, of course, they didn't mess back then, but they, they weren't a bad bunch of druggies and all that. They were just, you know, the drinking on the weekends and, you know, whatever. Um, but God got me out of them. And I think within three days of getting there, I ended up meeting Liz, who had been helicoptered out of Sacramento the same way. She was a sit in the sit in the park under the palm trees with long you know hair strumming a guitar just a hippie um, so we both end up on this 
campus. She didn't know near as much about God and church um, as I did. But nevertheless, we, in the eyes of the school, we were both from pagan land. They, the West Coast, any students from the West Coast, they actually put most of the, in the boys' dorm, I think everybody on the third floor where I was, was from either Oregon or California. Because they, you know, they, they probably sprayed, you know, um, to keep everybody else away from us. Um, but anyway, they had a list as long as your arm of um, rules against. If you, I think, I think if you happen to accidentally, um, you know, bump elbows with a girl in class or whatever, you were immediately classed as a couple once you fit into the category of a couple then you fell under another whole set of rules okay which meant you can't ever see each other basically if you see each other it's bad because you're going to be smooching around somewhere and i'm telling you we're not going to have it Um, and everything was aimed Mostly everything was aimed at the girls because they were the objects. You know what I mean? They were the objects of this raging lust from everybody else. And so there was no, no makeup allowed. Um, and, you know, what we joked about, no devil stirrups. Everybody knows what devil stirrups are, right? Earrings. Um, None of that stuff, okay? Um, we had to wear suits all day Sunday. And if you, want to, if you want a rapid route to hell, go outside on a Sunday and throw, play catch with a football. I'm not making that up. You weren't right with God if you broke the rule and went out and just tossed football around. Um, and I've told you this story, so I'll make it, my, I think I've told some of it. Um, I just came from Eugene, where they burned down the ROTC building. They burned the draft cards. I mean, it, Eugene was insane, okay? They literally, growing up in the 60s, the nickname for Eugene was Berkeley North. And it was an official nickname. Um, we were right behind San Francisco, Berkeley, and all that, with drugs. The head of the Eugene Police Force Drug um, Department went to our church. Um, And, I mean, the stories he was telling about inundating. Well, anyway, um, I just come from there. I had a totally different view of life. And I remember we petitioned the president to, to relax a couple of rules. One of them was to watch football on Sunday afternoon because that was a, a verboten. And his response was, we'll have no student radicalism on this campus. Um, and I, so I was on a little committee that presented all these. And I said, listen, I just came from Eugene. They burned down the ROTC building. They rioted in the streets. That's student radicalism, not wanting to watch football on a Sunday afternoon. Um, 
And I got there. I got there before second semester, and I had about three days. And I ran track for all through junior high, high school, and two years of college. And so um, I had track shorts. Okay. Um, and if you remember back in the 60s, the, you know, they, they weren't the long kind. They were just what we used to run in. So I went down to the gym. They actually had a gym. And alone, because I had not had anything to do. Everybody was in classes doing finals. And I was just in there um, shooting baskets with T-shirt and running shorts on. I don't know who saw me. Somebody saw me. And... Um, rushed as fast as they could to the president's office and turned me in for wearing shorts, uh, which I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about it, um, that it was even a rule. And so um, all of a sudden I get this letter. I get invited to the president's office, and I get this letter, and I'd been there like 48 hours. I was already in trouble. And um, so I went in, and he he was so worked up that I had been wearing track shorts in the gym, shooting baskets. It's not allowed, you know. So I go back to the dorm. The phone rings down at the end of the hall, you know, pay phone. Some kid finds me. It's your dad on the phone. So I went and talked to my dad, and he wanted to know if I did. Did you get there safe? I didn't forgot to call him, but anyway, um, did you get there safely? You know how are things going. <coughs> And I said, well, I'm in trouble already. Um, <clears throat> and my, my dad was very familiar with that college and with the president and so forth. And so I said, well, I'm already in trouble. And he says, well, what would you do? And I said, well, I was shooting baskets in the gym, you know, with my track shorts and got hauled into Dr. Harris's office. And he, he told me, he said, I don't pay attention to those people, you know. And so I said, yeah, but I got to live here, you know. Um, and I heard nothing else until about a week later. And I get called into the president's office again. And he's sitting at his desk. I'll never forget, his face was red. And the paper was just shaking in his hand. And I didn't know anything. And he said, do you know about this? And I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. He handed me the letter. And it was from my dad to him. In which he said, among other things, he said, the next thing you and that bunch of old maids back there will do is make a rule the babies can't be born naked. So I really got off on the wrong foot there. And I, the only thing I got out of it, and I shouldn't say it sounds bad, was a wonderful wife. Okay, I escaped um, the next year after one more semester. Um, in my ministry, I've had extensive experience with whole denominations and churches that buy into all of that kind of stuff. It's a reproach, but it still goes way, way back to some of these crazy ideas that got into the church in the second and third centuries. Um, so, and, and I think, it, sadly, it it puts people off um, that are just normal sinners, you know, normal lost people, that kind of stuff. Um, and I grew up in a home where, um, I mean, my, my parents were saints, and I lived there, and they lived at home what they 
dad preached at church. And we'd go out and play football or go out to the lake outside of Eugene, water ski all afternoon. Um, you know, buy gas, I guess we probably did, for the boat, and then get back in time for 6 o'clock youth group on Sunday night. Think nothing of it. Well, I go to that school, and at other groups that I came in contact with, that kind of stuff, you're not even a Christian. Um, and they'll throw you out. Um, that's still some of these ancient notions um, that got rooted and it's pretty tough to pretty tough to get them out now um, probably I think it was probably two or three centuries uh, at least second century by the time Gnosticism began to at least die out its danger subsided some people still stuck with it, but um, it, it was branded as a heresy and was um, considered, you know, you preach it, you believe it, you teach it, you're out. Um, so, anyway, other things then begin to, to, uh, to crop up. And this is, I'll just finish up here. This is not necessarily... Um, from the Roman, you know, religion, but but the early man alive, probably 800 years, was a great series in the church of um, all church councils, heresies, people exiled, um, you know, people kicked out of the church, excommunicated. And there were all kinds of heresies. In fact, one good thing that um, Gnosticism did for the church, and it was the first heresy that the church had to encounter, one thing it did, it forced the church to begin to put down in clear, concise language the doctrines of Christ, the incarnation, sin, righteousness, all, it forced the church to define itself clearly because it was under this kind of attack. And when you don't have anything clear, then you don't have anything that, upon which you can say, that is heresy. Um, it does not line up with this. It also hastened the um, concluding of the gathering of the canon, of the C-A-N-O-N, the books of the New Testament. Books of the Old Testament were already settled. But the books that belonged in the New Testament and ones that they didn't feel should um, was also hastened by the necessity of having um, infallible, spirit-breathed scripture to defend the Christian faith against this very first heresy. And there were 20, 30 other ones that came along. Okay, um, we'll quit. <clears throat> any any questions before we go? Any um, on either the Greek or the Roman influence that the church had to battle right off the bat um, in the New Testament before we go? Anything? Okay, let's um, close with prayer. Father in heaven,
<clears throat> we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for all the people superintended by the Holy Spirit who not only wrote Scripture, but also all those who wrote the history of the church, the early church fathers, so that we know, we know all of the false doctrines that cropped up, the ones so that we recognize when they crop up again, and they do. We see this has already been dealt with. It's, been, it's come up before. Uh, we know what the error is. And I thank you, Lord, that we have all of this along with Scripture to study and to guide us. Keep us, I pray, safe as we go our ways this evening and just continue with us. Help us walk in your light. In Jesus' name, amen.